The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Tokopa Turner. Tokopa is a mystic who blends Sufism with a Jungian approach to dream work. In 2001, she founded her dream school, and she continues to lead online learning and in-person retreats with thousands and thousands of followers around the world. Her recent book, Belonging, is a book about exile and remembering ourselves home. I connected with Tokopa online. She was at home on Salt Spring Island, BC. So Tokopa, what identities do you lead with? Hmm, I love that question. I don't know that anybody's ever asked me anything like that before. I am working on standing in a new identity these days, which is the identity of author. <laughs> and mm. I say it like that because it um, it has a, a funny shape when you say author. <laughs> and, um, and, and so I can carry it with a little uh, self-important humor, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a funny thing, you know. It took so long to write a book. It really was such a massive chunk of my life. And suddenly it's done and I can't believe I did it. So I'm still sort of stepping into that author. Um, And I also identify as woman. And I identify as dreamer and dream worker. So I help people with their dreams. And I help people understand the language of their dreams. So those are my top, I would say. That they're well, they're already fascinating and the way they must work together in relationship. Now, you have an unusual name, and I wonder how that forms part of your identity. Mm. I should say unusual to me. It's the first, you're the only Tokopa I've ever heard of or known. Mm-hmm. You know, my dream is actually to go to New Zealand one day, which is the, the country of origin of my mm. and um and maybe perhaps meet a maori person who has the same name as me because <laughs> i'm the only one i know too uh but my parents chose the name tokopa from um a book of poems from different cultures around the world it was a book called technicians of the sacred by jerome rothenberg and tokopa is the name of for better, for, for you, for lack of a better word, deities in the Maori um, creation myth. So Tokopa actually translates into parent of the mist. Wow, that's a prophetic name, hey? <laughs> it, you can imagine what it was like to grow up with a name like that. And for a long time, I just dropped the pa because toko was complicated enough for people. Right. <laughs> but then I learned that pa is, papa is actually the, the language for Mother Earth in the Maori culture. So I realized the pa part was really important. That was the goddess part. That was the mother part, the earth part. So, um, so I, I adopted it back into into um, use probably in my, not until my mid-twenties, something like that. 
Um, but yeah, it's taken some time to grow into it. But now, you know, when I think about it in relation to the work that I do, which is so much about navigating the veil between the worlds, a kind of parent of the mist fits sort of prophetically, as you say. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And already your parents have a bit of a mythology in my mind, uh, sort of developing around them. And I'd love for you to be able to uh, sort of set the record straight for me, because of course, it's like, oh, technologists of the sacred, this just sounds like this beautiful, mystical, uh, you know, being enchanted, sort of sung into being. I love it. But I, I would like for you to be able to describe what it was like for you growing up. What are your parents like? And what, what, how did, how did you start on this earth plane? Mm. I appreciate the sensitivity that it, it takes to find the story behind the story that <laughs> immediately gets projected onto things. I don't think enough people do that. Um, but yeah, so I was actually born in England. And when my um, parents split up, I was just four years old. And um, they split up because my father was actually physically abusive and violent. And so my mother left him. And we moved to Canada, which is the country my grandparents had um, a flee, had fl um, run away to um, after being survivors of the Holocaust in Poland. So, um, so we moved back to Canada, um, where my grandparents were. And um, my mother became involved with another partner who was a leader in the international Sufi order. And um, so for those of your listeners who don't know about Sufism, it's a mystical branch of Islam, an ancient form of mysticism, uh, which you would probably recognize through the poetry of Rumi. A lot of people know who Rumi is. So Rumi was sort of the original Sufi. Uh, and there are movements of people who have broken off from the more traditional um, Islamic traditions and who have become interested in the more mystical side of um, that world. And so that's the, that's the Sufis. And so I was raised in a commune in the red light district of Montreal. And so we had a we were very poor, but we had a big tenement that I suppose we must have rented. And it had like, I can't even believe this, but I think it had 18 rooms in the house. And um, there were all these transient hippies that were living there or just passing through. Uh, and so we would eat communal meals together and it was all vegetarian and every day we would come together for um, prayer and especially song or what the Sufis call Sikir, mm -hmm. which is the chanting of the different names of God in, um, in a state of ecstasy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And my mother was a yoga teacher, so we practiced yoga. So that was a little bit my life um, when I was growing up. And yet, of course, I'll just add that, you know, like any spiritual community, there is, it also casts a profound shadow. So there was a lot of difficulty uh, in my childhood home. Can you, I, I, I want to ask about that, but can you clarify for me, was this, a multicultural context or, you know, you're in Montreal, which is a relatively cosmopolitan city, you know, for Canada, but like, can you be a Sufi 
and not be Muslim? Or were, did you convert at some point? How, can you just clarify the technicality of that there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the leaders of the, so there are different orders, there are different Sufi orders, and um, the international Sufi order was, uh, was run, well, was started by um, uh, an Indian mystic named, an, I should say, an Oxford-educated Indian mystic <laughs> named Hazrat Inayat Khan. And, um, and then he had a son whose name was Pirvalaya Tanayat Khan, and he became, he seceded his father. And so uh, to become the leader of the international Sufi order. And so when I was a kid, Pirvalaya was the leader of the Sufi order. And so um, there, at this point, there is nothing to do really with uh, being Muslim. Sufi is a completely different thing from the fact that they have their branch, they have their roots in Islam is actually controversial. There are some people who say that Sufism is even older than um, than that, mm. than Islam. So, um, so yes, it, it was an international order, which means that people of all different races and cultures joined. Although there were a lot of hippies, you know. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, but I would say from a cultural perspective, there was a mix of uh, Hinduism and um, Sanskrit, and uh, even some Buddhism thrown in there. So it was a bit of a mashup. Mm-hmm. So. On- on the one hand, I could imagine, you know, moving forward a bit to to being um, uh, preteen, let's say, just before your adolescence, there must have been, you know, some uh, excitement or at least a lot of novelty, you know, with lots of people coming and going. But as you say, there's this shadow side, and I do wonder how maybe the legacies or impacts of um, your absent father or uh, the abuse that your mother had suffered or, you know, kind of living in this communal way in a, in a, within a larger context that isn't terribly collectivist. I just, I imagine there were a lot of confusing messages at that time. And I understand through your book that you left home and you, or you ran away or there were many problems. Can you tell me about that time, maybe from about 10 years old and, and what it was like you think that precipitated your leaving the commune? Mm. You know, I have to say that I think the precipitating event was actually the move that we made to live in the white suburbs because I had been living in the urban center my whole life, downtown Montreal. And then my grandmother decided that the way that her daughter, my mother, was living was kind of shameful and that she should have a house and they should have a nuclear family and all of that. So she bought my mother and her husband, my stepfather, a house in the suburbs and everything overnight changed because suddenly we weren't in a multicultural context. Suddenly we were living in a very rich, very white suburban neighborhood. And I was suddenly going, instead of going to art school, which is what I had been doing in the city, going to um, some funky art school with lots of different ages. Uh, And suddenly I was um, with all of these, you know, all of these very privileged white kids. And, you know, I had grown up, um, 
you know, I was telling you about our tenement was like, I mean, we had, you know, rats living in the floors and there were winters in Montreal where we didn't have heat on in the house. I mean, we were scraping by, you know, but suddenly all of the people I went to class with were people who lived in these huge mansions and they, you know, when they turned 16, their parents gave them cars. And so everything really shifted at that point. It was, um, I think it was really hard on all of us. And suddenly my family became this very small bubble of just my mother, my stepfather, and, and my siblings. And um, I think this was when I discovered that my mother um, really had, how to put this, um, had really been struggling, was really struggling um, emotionally and mentally. Maybe something that wasn't as obvious as I, when I was younger and wasn't as obvious in that um, more varied context of living in the commune with all of those different influences in my midst. Um, and so uh, it felt like becoming quite intimate with her difficulty mm. at that age too. And, um, and of course, I don't know really from her perspective what it was like to make that sudden shift as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, were very, we were very isolated all of a sudden. So how did you end up in the foster care system? Well, I started running away around that age, around nine or 10. And I wasn't very good at it when I was young because I had no survival skills at all. Um, but uh, I had so much conflict at home and, and I felt so unhappy that um, I started to have self-destructive thoughts and they became pervasive. I had a very difficult time in school. I was bullied relentlessly. I was obviously this very weird kid who came from this very weird background and, um, and felt very much like an outsider there. And then when I came home, there was so much uh, chaos and rage and violence that there was no um, respite on either end. And so I started running away to something, I don't know what, you know? I think at that age, partying felt like a place where I could just be free somehow with friends. Like and when you were like 10? Not quite, no, okay. it would have been a little bit older. I, I think I just, um, I skipped ahead a little bit, probably around 14, okay. I started hanging out with kids who were older than me and, mm. um, hanging out with boys and and then finally I think when I was um just turning 15 I ran away for good mm -hmm. and um, the cops came and found me I was staying at my older boyfriend's house at the time and um and they picked me up and they wanted to take me home uh and they asked me do you want to go home and I'll never forget it was a fateful moment because my answer was no I don't want to go back to that place and that was when they took me instead to a detention center a youth detention center downtown and that was the beginning of my being placed into the foster system as an adult now and knowing what you know from your own healing journey and you know the current research and more trauma-informed mental health practice, et cetera, 
how do you feel about the uh, systems that we have as a culture for youth? How did you even get out? I imagine it's by the grace of being a beautiful white girl that you managed to get out as well as probably many other things, but so many children, I'm thinking of indigenous children, uh, you know, how, how do you reconcile all of this now since you've been on the other side as a child, knowing what it's like uh, to be, to say, I don't want to go home. And then you're taken to a place called a detention center. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, <clears throat> of course, many of the reasons why I've been able to survive that life definitely have to do with my privileges, like being white and being um, intelligent and being, as you say, attractive. And also, I wouldn't paint that period of my life as anything other than horrible. Mm -hmm. um, there were many, many years in which I suffered like many of the young people who are in the system do who don't have parents and um, who turn to the wrong coping mechanisms mm -hmm. so I just want to acknowledge that you know it wasn't like I slid out of the system into some perfect life mm -hmm. and uh, and so there were many privileges I didn't have for instance um, an education mm. And, um, and had to struggle really for everything that, um, that I received. Mm -hmm. Maybe not everything, but, and, and so, man, that's a big question. How do I feel about the system? I mean, the system is just that. It's a system. It's, it is a machine. And um, it does nothing to help anyone, really. Mm -hmm. It's just, um, I guess, a, a, a system of triage, right? Like mm -hmm. what to do with people who have nowhere to go. But there's a huge amount of corruption within the system, including <clears throat> sexual abuse and physical abuse and neglect. And, and I came face to face with all of these things myself. Um, and yet, um, I needed somewhere to go mm. and yeah, I mean, you know, and then here in British Columbia, where Columbia, where we live, Carmen, um, I have been doing research about the system here and I've learned that 80% of the kids who are in the system here are indigenous youth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's really another residential school system, isn't it? Except now we don't keep them in one centralized place, but it's, it's still uh, a, a horrifying colonialist legacy where we'll take people out of the home, but we don't actually put them anywhere other than some kind of other prison. It's just so horrible. It's so staggering. And then, of course, you know, the way that my mind works is I go to ask the questions of why, why, you know, are all of these kids being put into the system? And then you, you get into all these complex systemic racism issues, which are so deep and so fresh. And um, yeah. Do you think we can do better? Like, given that we live in a capitalist society and a patriarchal society and a white dominant society, do you think we actually can do any better? Or do you sort of put your uh, effort into something at a, at a smaller communal level? I'm just curious. 
well, absolutely. I think we can do better. No question, you know, um, and I think we are doing better. Lots of us. I think there are lots of people who are working at different forms of activism to make change. You know, I met this beautiful elder just last week in Victoria who told me his story and he was telling me the story of how his mother had been put into residential schools and and so he was the direct descendant of that experience and um and sort of telling me the ways in which it it has shaped and thwarted his own life and his and his tribal life as well um but when i said when i said something similar like um you know we have this appalling um we have this appalling resistance to looking at the underlying issues and taking responsibility. He actually corrected me and said, there's lots of people out there who are taking responsibility. And it kind of shocked me mm. because, because I thought, well, that's a very generous perspective, you know, to look at the ways things are changing and I personally know a lot of people who are working their fingers to the bone or their hearts to the bone or however you want to put it to make changes um, and so there's lots of different forms of activism and I think we have to be really careful not to judge what is effective and what is not effective some people are working at the level of consciousness itself other people are working at the front lines you know helping uh, young people find opportunities or reclaim their language or um, you know uh, reintroduce pride and um, so there's a lot. It's a big, big topic. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how dream work helped pull you and your life into a different direction. Mm, thank you. Yes. I mean, I really think of dreams as nature itself. Naturing through us. And so I don't mean this as a metaphor. I mean, literally the land in the same way that the earth um, pushes nutrients up through a plant and then that plant then expresses itself in flowers, which emit honey, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is that something similar happens with us. Why wouldn't it? We're part of our ecosystems. And so dreams for me, um, what I have experienced is really having been parented by my dreams because I didn't, in the absence of the guidance that I should have had from the outside world, I turned instead to these dreams. And they produced um, so much guidance for me over the years and they continue to do that. And so I believe that when we turn towards our dreams, we are actually listening to the larger inclination of the land in, in which the land of our origin and that there is an intelligence there which is wanting to move our lives in a direction of not only alignment for the personal purpose, which is where a lot of people will stop and focus, but how that personal purpose then is embedded in the larger 
ecosystem or the larger need or the larger culture, but then not just the human culture, the other than human culture, which is the, the entirety of our working together. Wow. So let's just slow down. <laughs> I think a lot of people, I mean, it's such a beautiful uh, notion to, to it, it's almost a, an animist perspective, right? To say the, the, the earth is dreaming through me and uh, I am able to give voice or interpretation, but it isn't about me. It's about me being in this larger relationship. Have I got you? Yeah, 100% beautifully put. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, I would like to bring in a particularly interesting dream that you wrote about in your book, Belonging, Remembering Ourselves Home. And uh, there, in chapter three, which is called The Death Mother, you uh, actually have a dream, which I'd like to read now. Do you mind if I do that? Please, go ahead. Okay, it's called The Witch's Grave, Tokopa's Dream. I dreamed some of the male analysts from the Young Foundation were deep in a forest, building a platform out of wood. What they didn't realize is that they were building it on the grave of a powerful witch who was awakening in a rage. In what felt like an instant, she leapt from her grave and unleashed her fury, slaughtering the men and everyone else in sight. It was a terrifying bloodbath. Now, I'm interested in this dream because I'm very interested in rage and survival rage as, as being one of these very important responses. It's almost, it's not even an emotion, it's a reaction that comes from the body to say, uh, I'm going to protect life and limb and loved ones. And uh, it's so important for us in terms of being able to make change, not just personally, but I think socially. Uh, now, I have lots of clients who, who come in, in, in uh, my program. You have a, in, uh, a course, a, a dream work course that runs several times a year, and people can really dive right into that specifically. In my course in the Numidus School, we just have one month where we look at working with dreams in the moon. And of course, people want to bring their scary dreams, right? Dreams of it like this. They're murderous or they're dismemberment dreams or there's, you know, rage dreams. And they might call them nightmares or dark dreams, etc. Now, this dream, like I love <laughs> because my perception, you know, I, I would love to um, unpack that in, you know, 10 different ways. But can you talk about how you would approach working with that kind of dream. What do you do with that dream after you have it? When you say turn towards, what are you actually doing? Yeah, so there's a danger when we talk about turning towards a difficult dream where somebody might begin to think that they have to override their instinct, which is to be frightened by and shaken by and want to turn deny that dream and so i'm not talking about override or bypass here mm -hmm. turning towards is a, a, a little bit like later down the line you know <laughs> this is the place we want to get to eventually and, and I, even i hear you say i love this dream but carmen if you woke up with this dream you right. would not love it right you, i'd be shaky i'd be yeah 
yeah, you'd be shaky, you'd be terrified, you'd be, you know, it might take days for you to recover, which is what happened to me when I had this dream. Of course, we can love it now because I've integrated it. And by integrating it, now I can write about it in such a way that empowers the images of this dream. So it's important to just notice that that process has already happened behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, when we receive a dark or difficult dream, the reason why it is, I think of it a little bit like a, it has turned up the volume on something we haven't paid attention to before. We might have gotten many hints before in other form and we're not listening, we're ignoring, we're turning away from it. And so it gets louder and louder and louder until it's screaming at us because it needs our attention. So just to give people a little bit of context, I had this dream after years of studying at the Jung Foundation of Ontario. And I had been deeply interested in Jungian um, analytical psychology for a long time. I had devoted myself to it in a way. I was a devotee. <laughs> um, but I, for a long time, was feeling um, like there was a limitation to that way of approaching dreams. And um, it was like there was something more important that wasn't being accessed. There was a power in me which was being denied. There was a, um, there was something feminine upon which a platform was being built that I, needed to tear down in my own psyche. And so in, in as much as I love the Jungians and I have learned so much about working with dreams from that world, from that school of thought, there, there, it is still a patriarchal structure, which by the way, you need hundreds of thousands of dollars and a master's degree to study, to even gain entry into that world. So you can imagine what Jungian gatherings look like. There. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, they're moneyed. They're pretty, I imagine they're pretty homogenous. They are, in <laughs> fact, um, uh, I really only know of, you know, a handful if that, of people of color who have completed the whole training program in the world. Yeah, maybe, I'm trying to think, like maybe Jean Shinoda Bolin. I'm trying to think, I don't know if she's completed all of, but she's gone to. Yeah, yeah she is a Jungian, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, finding. Well, she's just, she's just one of the famous ones. You know? <laughs> right, that's right, that's right, yeah. So, so anyway, so just, yeah. so just coming back for a moment to the dream. So, so what was being shown to me here was I had this growing discomfort that I was ignoring. And so the dream had to just show me that there was this witch, this ancient feminine thing that was underneath living in the earth under and, and presumed dead. And instead, this other thing was building a platform on her grave, which is exactly what analytical psychology is. It's saying you need a middleman with a degree to tell you what your dreams mean. Mm -hmm. 
but but I but there was something deeper, something more feminine, something more ancient, which was growing in rage that needed to tear all of that down in my life. And so this dream was really the beginning for me of becoming much more interested in indigenous dreaming practices, but even more importantly than that, in just having a direct relationship with my own dreams, with my own inner teachers. Mm-hmm. It's a fabulous dream. Can, can you define what you mean by feminine? In this context? Yes. Well, you know, the Jungians use the language, the feminine, to speak about a, a vast umbrella under which many things fall. Uh, and uh, um, under that umbrella could be anything from the instinctual life, the feelings, the sensitivity itself, um, uh, connectedness, and the ability to be relational, interdependent, what some people call Gaia philosophy. Um, and, And then, of course, all of the iterations of having a relationship with the unseen world. So mysticism, um, everything from midwifery to herbology to witchcraft to, um, you can basically think of anything that's been uh, maligned by the dominant culture. And you could say it probably falls under the purview of what the young <laughs> call the feminine. Right. And of course, it's difficult to use that language because the language is charged and, and we, uh, we have gendered associations to that language. Uh, but I, I kind of don't have that anymore because I've uh, broken that down for myself. But sometimes what I use alternatively is the language around yin and yang. Um, which is the Chinese model of the interdependent halves of one whole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I appreciate the specificity, though, of being able to describe, because the Jungians, well, as, as we've said, they're quite homogenous. And so when they say feminine, it's very difficult to not think about gender breakdowns, because that is the context in which this thought is emerging. Even though I love young, everybody, I, I know the youngians are getting up in arms right now. But, but I, I also, when, so when they say feminine, I, in my mind, automatically substitute connective. When they say masculine, I automatically substitute independent you know, that sort of thing. And so I have to just like unhook and kind of put it in like historical context. You know, I love young and especially in his later, um, more mystical years and writings and, and when he writes about synchronicities and, and things like that, of course, but if, you know, he's a product of his time and his culture, he, he couldn't really see his own whiteness or the page, you know, anyway, I don't want to, hijack the conversation, but I really appreciate you taking the time to flesh out what feminine means to you and how you're um, using the term. I think that's really, um, it adds much more texture too to, to the dream, I think. 
Yeah, I've, I've actually devoted a whole chapter in my book called The Inner Marriage, devoted to trying to break down this language around feminine and masculine. And I actually replace it with eros and logos, mm -hmm. uh, which also has its own challenges. But, <laughs> yeah. but just an attempt to just try on different language so we can understand the things, like you said, outside of the, the context of those old patriarchal structures. And, um, and of course, that was one of the huge problems that I had with the Jungian world was this, um, this whole concept that Jung had around the anima and animus. And it's this mm -hmm. basic idea that if you're born into a female body, that your undeveloped side <laughs> is the animus or the masculine. Mm -hmm. I just like, I just had way too many people in my life, including myself, who consider themselves much more fluid on the gender spectrum. <laughs> that was not true. Mm -hmm. so I, I rejected that whole idea pretty early on, but it's still, a, it's very classical Jungian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, we started the interview with uh, you identifying as author, and this is your first book, Belonging, Remembering Ourselves Home. And I'm curious, and, and I ask this with, with loving curiosity, not as a challenge, but what, what made you feel that you had the knowledge or the um, ability now to write about the topic of belonging? Mm. Well, to be honest, I have never thought or felt that. It's quite the opposite. I don't consider myself an expert in belonging. I consider myself an expert in not belonging. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, at this very early age, I, I didn't feel like I belonged in my own home and that persisted throughout my whole life, not have, you know, being an orphan, even though I had um, parents who were alive in the world and uh, taking a very um, countercultural path. Um, and so it was, you know, it wasn't ever a decision to write a book, actually. It was more as if I was possessed by the question of what is this thing that haunts my foundations? Mm. How can I understand the dimensions of the exile that I feel in my own life better and do other people have that same experience and so I, I, I you know there was something that happened or a series of things that happened to me including being struck with a debilitating illness which forced me even deeper into confrontation of those questions and so I did what always I have done, which is to just write about it. And so I started to write and the writing led me to receive more dreams. Mm -hmm. And the dreams seemed to be teaching me about different ways of looking at belonging that I had never considered before. And so I would write what I understood to be the teachings of those dreams. And before you knew it, it, it wasn't journaling anymore. I realized it was a book. Mm. And so I committed 
um, at some later date to turning it into a book, which was <laughs> complicated because now I had this like patchwork of random ideas, which had to be, you know, smoothed into some kind of narrative order. So hopefully I've succeeded in making some kind of sense of all of that. It's quite lovely. And um, I very much feel that there is an well, I, we could say an archetypal quality to it because you are seeking a pathway home, right? It's like you're in the forest and, and you know, you're, you're, you are, it feels as the reader that we're following you along this journey. And it's, um, it brings in a lot of themes um, about ancestral longing and things that I think are very relevant. Certainly they've been coming up in my life and the life of a lot of my uh, clients as well. Um, and you mentioned that one of the uh, pathways or the, or the crucible, one of them to understanding belonging was the experience of a persistent and debilitating illness. And I imagine all the emotions come with that. But I'm curious how you now, at this time in your life, Tokopa, how do you manage and express and cope with grief? Well, you know, what, what else can you do but grieve it, you know? Um, there were a lot of years uh, when I lived in the system, which was a very dangerous place. And after that, um, because I was still so young and vulnerable, even leaving the system many years, in which I never grieved because... Um, you couldn't show your weakness, you couldn't show your vulnerability, because if you did, you, you would get um, targeted. Mm. And so I very successfully managed to seal that place off and go into a kind of survival mode for years and years and years. And um, at some point, I think it was after I fell in love for the first time in my life, my first love, uh, I was in my early 20s and I met a fellow and we were together for a number of years. And um, I would wake up every night having had these terrible dreams in tears. So there was all this like unprocessed grief, which was just coming to the surface despite my efforts to keep it down. And that was really the beginning of, you know, um, healing those pipes, healing those dry taps. And my God, there was a lot of it. Um, you know, I'm talking decades now of ungrieved grief, ungrieved grief. And, um, and so now my relationship with grief is really to affirm it when it arises. Uh, so I cry a lot. I cry every day. Sometimes I cry from beauty. Sometimes it's just a few, you know, wet tears in the corner of my eyes. I, um, sometimes it's through my compassion for others who are suffering. And sometimes it's through my own suffering. Um, but there's a lot of it, you know, uh, and I really, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, it's hard to grieve unless you have some kind of support system to help you mm -hmm. do that. And 
Um, so a lot of people, you know, say in my situation, uh, very similarly, don't have the time and space and safety to grieve. And so you just kind of have to keep you know, pulling your boots on, that kind of thing. Uh, but I'm very blessed to finally be in a place in my life where I have a lovely partner and, you know, I can pay my bills and these kinds of things. And so, um, yeah, I, it gives me the, the privilege and space and time in order to grieve my grief. Um, but I think whatever our circumstances is, are, whatever our circumstances are, we have to find a way to allow our grief to express itself, right? Mm-hmm. And I, but did, I think, it, sorry, I was just going to finish that thought by saying that one of the biggest obstacles to doing that is not necessarily our circumstances, but is our own internal relationship to the affirming of that grief as a healthy and necessary part of the spectrum of being, right? Because there is so much invalidation that we have around being weak or falling apart or, you know, looking ugly or whatever your thing is that, that may make um, us believe that we should distance ourselves from our grief, that it will be bottomless, that it will be endless. Um, and yet we have to find a way to do it anyway, because really that moisture that comes out is what fertilizes the soil around us so that new life can grow there. Mm-hmm. And your book, Belonging, is really a process of unraveling all of the unworthiness and the uh, loneliness and the othering that has invalidated those emotions. So I want to thank you for the uh, depth of vulnerability and the incredible um, care that you've taken towards the reader and in sharing this book. And thank you so much for being on the show today. I have so many other questions about dream work, but I think I'll just put in the notes um, that uh, a link to your course, because <laughs> I know that people have questions about what if you don't dream? What if you all of that? So everything will be in the show notes. Uh, but thank you so much for, for being on the show today, Tokopop. Oh, well, thank you for the incisiveness of your questions, Carmen. I really appreciate meeting you in this place. And if you'd ever like to do it again, we can always have a part two. <laughs> that sounds great. Thank you. Isn't she fascinating? And so gently poetic, isn't she, about such painful and complex topics? You can find out all about Tokopa's fascinating dream school and where to buy her book on her website, tokopa.com, T-O-K-O-P-A.com. As always, I like to thank the listeners who, around the world who are taking their time uh, with me today. So I would like to thank all my listeners living in the province of Quebec. Je t'aime, Québec. J'ai d'abord visité votre belle province en 1987, je crois lors d'un échange en immersion française. Je suis revenue plusieurs fois, et si je devais choisir une autre province au Canada pour vivre, je pense que ce serait la vôtre. Merci d'être resté avec nous ici en Canada. J'espère que vous ne partez jamais, mais bien sûr, je respecte totalement votre droit de le faire si vous le souhaitez. 
Okay, let's talk about quest. We need to set a date, a deadline, okay? So let's say April 1st. That is the day deposits are due to retreat with me during the full moon in June 2018. Who is coming with? Me and Ruben and a beautiful group uh, so far comprised uh, just of women this year. You can now place your deposit online and learn all the details on my website under the retreats tab. Just go to carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.